and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Philip Hiscock. Philip has been studying Newfoundland and Labrador language and folklore for four decades. These days, he teaches folklore at Memorial University of Newfoundland and is the coordinator of the MA and PhD programs in that department. Philip, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. I'm delighted you're here. It's I'm al- glad to be here. It's always great to have a conversation with you. I, you know, I, I was saying to uh, Tara Barrett, who's our production assistant here when I was driving up, because you are nearing retirement. Another year. And, and you, are, you are one of my favorite people to, to have a chat with. I always, oh. I always feel that when I'm up in the department, you know, that there's always a good, good chance of having a good conversation with you when you're up. Your listeners don't know that I've known you, Dale, for 25 years almost. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's a long time. That's right. We've had fun together all that time. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. And I, and I do, you know, I've always admired you, you as having this kind of encyclopedic knowledge, I think, of lots of different aspects of Newfoundland folklore and uh, language. You're kind of my go-to guy when someone asks me a weird Newfoundland question that I don't uh, have the answer to. Uh, but how did you get started? How did you develop an interest in this kind of stuff? God, I don't know. Um, the, um, I mean, in an academic sense, I can give you the sort of beginnings and all that sort of stuff. You know, I studied uh, linguistics in, right. in the 1970s. And really, my, uh, one of my big interests in linguistics was dialectology. And uh, through that, I... I uh, I became at least uh, familiar with all the the questions that were available about Newfoundland dialectology. I, I actually never did finish my MA thesis in linguistics. I gave that up um, for a, I was going to say gave it up for a bad job, but really, you know, I simply gave it up and uh, found myself five years later then working in folklore. And uh, I I. I had done my my BA really as a Newfoundland Studies BA even before Newfoundland Studies was invented. Uh, you know, I really looked for courses that were about Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, so I knew my way around all the um, all the the basic sites of information, both the published stuff and the, a lot of the archival resources. So, um, and I was asking questions I think in my own mind that needed. To be answered because they weren't answered in the in the literature. So when I came to um, folklore, I uh, I actually had no folklore courses when I went to work in the folklore and language archive in uh, very early, the very uh, January of 1979. And uh, uh, but I realized that I wanted to get a, a you know a degree that take took me beyond where I was. At that point, I, I only had a BA at that point, and this uh, aborted MA. And um, so, a couple of years later, I started taking master's courses and realized, hey, this is this is the stuff I like mm-hmm. this. And uh, then wrote a, a thesis, a master's thesis, which really combined my my scholarly interests in folklore, folklore studies, uh, with my my hobby interests of radio. A hobby I've had since I was a kid, and which I still keep alive today. And um, I turned that thesis into uh, a kind of an oral history of radio in Newfoundland, and um, but I, using all the while folklore, folkloristic as we folklorists say, folkloristic tools and concepts, theory. And um, once that was done by the mid '80s, I realized. I can't stop now. <laughs> this is it. Um, and so I then carried on. And I, I toyed with five or six different topics for my research, for my PhD. Um, 
uh, including things that I carry on today, things like folklore of language, uh, the customary year in this province, mm-hmm. um, and, and several others. And but in the end, took a, a, a narrower approach with what I had already done with my master's degree in the folklore of radio, or really what it was. It was looking at the relationship of folklore and popular culture in the middle or the, the middle of the twentieth century. And in particular with that thesis, I, I looked at how Joe Smallwood, um, in a sense, reinvented the, the vernacular conception of folklore in Newfoundland in the 1930s and early 40s, and how he took little bits of local folklore and then turned them into national folklore in Newfoundland. And, uh, and that's really the core piece of, of my, uh, my PhD. But that carried me forward then in a lot of work that I've done since then in in looking at how we uh, how we conceptualize what folklore is, the folklorist in me knows that uh, real folklore is culture that's passed on from person to person in very informal circumstances. Uh, but the the twenty first century guy that's here in me, the, the ordinary you know intelligent viewer of the world around him, knows that people pick up some of these things and then wear them as as buttons on their lapels and and wave them around as flags you know Mm -hmm. i'm a newfoundlander law because i say skeet or something you know right yeah and uh, so the there's a a very different uh folkloric phenomenon going on there Uh, something i'm very interested in i I caught someone saying uh, yesterday um a colleague in another department that a certain kind of linguistic form was inauthentic. Um, and what she meant was, and she kind of took it back after a second, but what she meant was that it didn't have the same traditionality that, say, the grandfather of the person she was referring to uh, would have been sitting in with regard to that bit of speech. In, instead, it was something that was brought out and then uh, waved around, again, like a flag, yeah. as, you know, I'm a Newfoundlander law. So all those things have there are questions that just keep coming at me, keep me alive in in folklore, keep my brain alive in folklore. Yeah, uh, we do we do see that uh, you know that 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 use of that uh, kind of almost a, a faux Newfoundland vernacular that people can kind of code switch, like can kind of go from sure. um, regular speech, kind of the standard Canadian speech, into that uh, kind of idealized Newfoundland folk mm-hmm. uh, speech in some way, and people do that all the time. And they have done for years. That's right, for, yeah. for generations. The uh, when the second edition of the Dictionary of Newfoundland English came out in 1988 or whenever that was, 88 or 90, the uh, the editors pointed out that they had in that intervening time, the six or eight years between the first and second edition, become uh, very interested in, in what they termed celebrity of certain terms and words in Newfoundland. And that's what they meant. They meant that some of these things now were being played up, and they were being played up for rhetorical purposes by individuals, but mm-hmm. they were also being played up for political and economic purposes by uh, politicians and oh, bed and breakfast or bar restaurant owners and so on. Yeah, uh, you know the the famous uh, restaurant on on uh, Kim Mount Road from the nineteen nineties that had a big billboard "Have a Towton or Do Withouten," and just a lovely, poetic, and amusing use of Newfoundland English, yeah. both grammatical and uh, terminological. And uh, 
Uh, well, I suppose it's both uh, lexical, lexical, lexical uh, use of town and un. But uh, that's uh, certainly part of the celebrity of those things. And you, But that feeds back. And so, as you know, there's a, um, a term in folklore studies, folklorism, which uh, is very useful for that feedback formation that we see all the time. And I don't see anything inauthentic about that. I, right. I see that as empowering, essentially. Do you, do you see any current uh, words or phrases that are kind of experiencing a resurgence? Are there, are there new old words that are coming back? Uh, well, I, I think of a skeet all the time. Yeah. Skeet, skeet is a, a really interesting word. Um, I think it, uh, it's an older word. It's not a new word. Uh, the, however, it's spreading uh, in this new form, both meaning and celebrity. So it gained celebrity starting in the early 2000s, so say a decade and a half ago. It started to gain celebrity as a Newfoundland word. In the same way that Barmp had perhaps eight or ten years before that, it gained celebrity as a Newfoundland word. So people started being proud of the fact that they were using it. Right. And uh, so Skeet has moved in its, its meanings uh, over the course of a couple of generations, uh, but it's you know it's still basically the same uh, negative uh, term about another group of people that you're you know the user is glad they are not a member of. Yeah, and for for people who might be listening from uh, outside of Newfoundland, h- how would you define skeet then? How would you use that in? Uh um, as a scholar, I define it as a word rather than as a person. Okay? <laughs> yes. And that word has a lot of different uh, uses. Uh, people who use it, of course, uh, use it to refer to a kind of person. There, the, In many local areas, there are words for uh, kind of not social outcasts so much as um, people who are... are um, uh, they're not living up to the, the most recent consumerist fads. They're not doing the things that people who consider themselves in crowd are doing. And they're perhaps living on the edge of, of uh, society or, or local culture anyway. And, uh, and perhaps they're somewhat threatening mm. to uh, people. Um, so uh, the skeet, I think, depending on who you ask, you can bring together a bunch of semantic factors, you know. Uh, among them are, say, untrustworthy, um, not wearing clothes that uh, the current consumerist crowd thinks is cool, uh, perhaps smelling, you know, perhaps they don't, they're said not to bathe, uh, uh, perhaps engaged in illegal activities, particularly of certain kinds, you know, they'll do petty robberies, they'll, they'll sell dope, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, they're perhaps doing kinds of dope that the the cool people don't do. You know, those who have a few tokes on Friday night, you know, are perhaps not doing, you know, the you know some of the pills that the skeet crowd are doing. And uh, I don't know. I've just pointed off five of them, but there's probably other factors <laughs> sure, too. Yeah. So, is it ever a term that is used to self-identify, or is it always a term that is used in opposition to someone well, else? Yes, it is. It can be. And so I know someone who has a real good friend that she calls Skeet. And and Skeet doesn't mind that name when it's coming from her friends. Right, you know? yeah. And uh, someone could say, geez, that was awful Skeety of me, wasn't it? You know, when they 
take back the change than they shouldn't have or something. You know, they're, they're, they're being kind of uh, acquisitive uh, or, or cheating a friend in some small way, you know, taking all the milk, you know, for your coffee and your friend didn't get any. Jeez, that was skeety, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, it can be used uh, in that way. There's a really interesting uh, set of videos uh, uh, that have gone around about skeetdom uh, and uh, the crowd of people who used to call themselves Newfoundland versus do you know their new the, name the, which are uh, who, they do YouTube videos YouTube and, videos yeah, yeah they have a new name and I can't remember what it is they they did uh, one or two where they asked people that they thought were skeets on the street are you a skeet and uh, you know or what is a skeet or whatever you know so engaging people in this sort of edgy sort of half ironic way and uh, kind of cruel kind of funny if you don't mind the cruelty you know yeah. um, and uh, I don't think any of those people said yes I'm a skeet you know? <laughs> it's always somebody else and it's know? interesting that now there is this uh, online um, subculture almost of, of Newfoundlandia that is kind mm-hmm. of related to skeet culture you know like you have things like the, the, the versus videos That's or right. Donnie Dumphy or or other, that's other, right. And I know you've yeah. done some work on on a local musical group that kind of works some of well, that. Well, that's there. ten over ten years ago. Yeah. The Zebo Unit, yeah. Zebo Unit, and yeah. they were kind of the proto uh, uh, group playing with skeetdom, and uh, so uh, that was a, a, a group, a small group of uh, boys in junior high school at that time. So they were like fourteen, fifteen years old, and they were producing this wickedly funny and really intelligent stuff in this. Uh, very current at the time, rap uh, musical sensibility form. And uh, so they were writing essentially poems, you know, of that sort, that were in the voice of skeets. And uh, it was also set, they were from you know, one of the suburbs of St. John's, the, you know, the near rural areas. And uh, so, but went to school in downtown St. John's, at least latterly they did. And, and uh, so they were mixing with kids who were rather, you know, perhaps more or less cosmopolitan or urbane or cool than they were. And so there was a great deal of question, is, is this stuff being made by skeets? Is it people playing up their skeetdom? Or is it people making fun of skeets? Or, mm. And the same argument happened in rap music circles said you know this isn't real hip hop this is making fun of hip hop this is this is awful stuff or this is really cool this is this is the best kind of hip hop that's around you yeah. know so anyway it was it was highly um ambiguous and that ambiguity drove the humor and the success of it and it was hugely successful you know many of your listeners i'm sure will remember gazebo unit perhaps some of them still have them on their their computers you know yeah, and play yeah. them you know <laughs> <laughs> they they have their their favorite gazebo unit song the the other word that uh, i now see everywhere <clears throat> in in tourism literature and in businesses and whatnot is is b- buy you know that that's a, it's kind of one of these words that has become very prevalent it's it's everywhere and people who might not I think normally say it in conversation, still still use that. Uh. Buy is really interesting. Uh, I've been noticing that the, the uh, you know, I'm in my 60s now, and, you know, my, my vowels were formed a long time ago. <laughs> but people who are under the age of about 30, around there, often now, who use it normally, yeah. uh, don't say buy the way I say it, but they say ba, they or something, ba, yeah. ba, you know, and they'll often spell it as 
B A apostrophe or B A H. Yeah. But it's it's used exactly the same way. Yeah. And so is that a, is that a a modern shift then? Because I've yeah. noticed that in the last say four years or so, uh, with the prevalence of memes now uh, on the internet, that but is is as a word that is constantly used. Now I see that in in print in memes mm-hmm. much more than I would see by. Yeah. And and I think that's uh, a function of how the word has shifted. That it has shifted is a sign to us folklorists, of course, that it's alive. You know, dead animals don't move. Right. <laughs> live animals move. And when live folklore uh, is alive, it's moving, it's changing its forms. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a really iconic piece. It's one of those uh, bits that, uh, I mean, you could look at this a couple of different ways. Uh, in a kind of hard sort of anti-change way, you might say, oh, people are picking and choosing from the tradition and, and just using it, and that just that's a sign the tradition is dead. Well, I, I'm not like that. I, I see it just exactly the other way, that the contexts have changed, and so the contexts require different forms of, of the older folklore, and the older folklore morphs to fit in a living way mm-hmm. into these new contexts. So that's exactly... Uh, a good example of how these things move. By, by was iconic already. Of course, uh, I published a long article about ten years ago about the song "Eyes the By," and by has always been one of my very first linguistics courses. Was taken with uh, William Kerwin, Bill Kerwin, who was one of the, the central people of the Dictionary of Newfoundland English. And um, Bill, this would be about 1972, I think. Bill asked the class, this was a you know, second year, uh, it was actually an English course because he taught in the English department, but he was, he was a lexicographer and a linguist. He asked the class, um, how many of you are aware of using by with women? And most of the people in the class shook their head, no, no, I never used that. You'd use something else, girl or something. But uh, significantly, several of the women in the class said, oh, yeah. You know, I use it all the time, you know. So that's a sign that by had already, by that time, 40-odd years ago, become uh, iconicized in a way, or, or perhaps that's not the right word in that sense, but it had shifted from being a uh, semantically male thing. Mm-hmm. Certainly it had lost its youth uh, at that point, but um, it had shifted into a relationship indicator right? You know, okay. uh, rather than anything else. And um, it was something that uh, then, in the 70s, Eyes the By was, had achieved its huge popularity already 20 years before that, because yeah. that's really a product of the 1950s. Um, so it was, it was already something that everybody understood as a bit of Newfoundland speech. Mm-hmm. And um, um, your listeners would have heard my fingers rise then and, and make little <laughs> air quotes <laughs> around yeah. Newfoundland speech. Yeah. The, uh, uh, so... I think it's continuing to be. It's it's really probably one of just a very small number, two, three, or four Newfoundland linguistic icons. Yeah. The the S at the end of verbs is another one. Right. Yes. I like stat. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really like to be in here. Oh, and this is a nice place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I you know I as a child uh, growing up in southern Ontario, um, 
Eyes the Bye That Builds the Boat was a song that I learned in school, and I think in part because it had been included in a compilation of folk songs by Edith Folk. Yes. Which was then, uh, in uh, my, child, my childhood, was part of the curriculum mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a kid. And I, a few years ago, I was at a conference in um, uh, England, and I, the conference had ended, and I was wandering around, and I had, there was a, a local church in Reading, and I'd wandered in, and there was a boys' choir rehearsing. And here they were doing this amazing, you know, choral version of Eyes the Bye That Builds the Boat. And I'm sure none of them really knew the context of the, the song. But mm-hmm. here it was, this word that had kind of yeah. permeated out beyond. It's, it's a song that has probably a half dozen, perhaps more, um, what they call SATB, four-part harmony choral versions available. Uh, several people have... have uh, arranged it for choirs so it's a song that has um, a lot of uh, it, it has what do they call it it has legs you know? yeah. um, and it, it's moved around a lot and it's a, it's fun uh, you know for people who don't understand. well it's fun for anybody they, yeah. you know it's it's a fun song that's one reason why it became popular you're right about Edith Folk um, that's really the uh, Edith Folk and uh, several other people around that time uh kind of cottoned onto that song as the a real good example of Newfoundland folklore and, and shows the difference between Newfoundland and general Canadian Anglo culture and, and so on. Um, in the article that I, I published about it, I, I made the argument that, in fact, it was at that time, through folk and several others, that we we turned that song into a statement of macho uh, and we lost some of the earlier forms that the song had had, which had very feminine and domestic scenes in them. Uh, we see some of those coming back again. Uh, uh, one of the local groups around St. John sings an old uh, verse, uh, Oh, Dear Mother, how does it go? Um, anyway, it's a, it's a little girl speaking to a mother, and the mother giving advice to the, the young girl about uh, how to protect herself in the, in the world out there. Hmm. And... Um, that's lost in the, the general version of Eyes the Bye that we have. Because for whatever reason, either it wasn't sung to these mainlanders by the men who were singing these songs to them, or the, the mainlanders who, who heard them, people like Folk and, and uh, Peacock and several others, um, just thought, well, it doesn't really fit that, that ocean-going manly right. view yeah. that so much Newfoundland folklore, uh, as it's been played up over the last 60 years, shows so um, and that all comes back to this whole idea of like creation of culture and commodification and sure how we sell our image of ourselves that's right yeah raymond williams the the great english uh, historian anthropologist literary critic names <laughs> a lot of things um said that that at any one time the the conception that we have of the folk culture of a people is a creation of that time and and I think that's really very important. I think all of us folklorists feel that that when we look backwards, we're we're looking through the lenses of today or last week or you know whenever it was written down or yeah. re- recorded. Uh, we're not really looking back tens of thousands of years ago. Um, our scholarly predecessors a hundred years or more ago used to think that you could look at the the uh, folklore collected from children or or rural people at that time and see some image of a society of, you know, two or 10,000 years before. 
but we gave that up a long time ago. We, you know, that that kind of gives me the creeps to think that I can look at children's rhymes and then make something of the 13th century from it. No, <laughs> right. yeah. you know, it's very difficult to do that. Yeah. But I can make something about you know the 21st century children's rhymes that I'm collecting. We were talking uh, this morning uh, about uh, a child lore and language play in relation to things you do when you see a certain type of vehicle. There was a discussion on the Folklore Thursday hashtag this morning about if you saw a car with one headlight, you would do a certain thing and mm-hmm. say a certain thing. Um, and then that led into this whole other discussion of you know what you do when you saw a VW bug. A storytelling colleague of mine, Cengizalka, who's Hungarian, said, oh, well, when we saw a green Trabant, we would do a certain thing and say a certain thing in uh-huh. Hungary. When you, were, when you were growing up, were there, were there child lore car-related workplace? Uh, uh, I remember picking this up as kind of teenager lore. From I had a sister who was uh, uh, somewhat older than me, two, two or three years older than me, and she was very much a socialite, you know, and I used to think at age 11 and she was 13, wow, you know, she really gets around. <laughs> and she'd often bring home teenage folklore, and which I now see as teenage folklore. And uh, I, I think that's where I first heard of this idea that when you see a car with one light missing, then you could do something. Um, and, and to be honest, my mind is so mushed with so many different reports of this, I can no longer remember what it was. I don't think it was you could hit the person, but I think you you claimed something, and I can't remember what it was. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, looking on, on what people have been commenting on social media, there, there's almost like two camps. There, one, one is... There's some version of a phrase that is what I learned was uh, padido, and then you could hit someone. But other people say things like spadoodle or doodlebug mm-hmm. or yeah. padida, like some combination of those uh, those consonants and vowels. And then there seems to be another group of people that would say something like, "Oh, one-eyed monster," or a Janice Tulk who uh, went through the the folklore program here. She she grew up in Cornerbrook, and she said people would yell cyclops and then wow. be able to. That's, to do that's so. very literal. Oh, which I sounds which I <laughs> sounds fabulous. Um, and then, of course, pe- people then had this whole discussion of, of punch buggies, mm-hmm. you know, that you could then, if you saw a VW bug. These things, there, there was a huge growth, of course, in uh, teenage popular culture in the 1970s and 80s and, and ever since. And uh, a lot of these things got spread around through that and then took a new route in small groups. Mm. And it's, I think it's a really interesting lesson for folklorists in... Uh, in how folklore spreads. It, it spreads by spores. No spores are often spread through popular culture. So uh, something comes out through popular culture and then it takes root again in a local circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, years ago, I think you probably heard the same kinds of dismissals by some folklorists said, oh, that's just popular culture. Well, no, it's not just popular culture. You know, it, it comes into the vernacular through a certain kind of popular culture. It's no different from, say, folk tales in the 15th century being spe- spread around by um, uh, manuscripts or or uh, traveling salesmen or or you know when print became more popular through early print. You know, so that they still became rooted then in local communities mm-hmm. all over the world. It's the same sort of thing that happens today, except it can happen very quickly now. If you you know if you have a ha- uh, hashtag that. Uh, that catches fire, that goes viral, then you can spread something very, very quickly. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's suddenly then in a local community. That's you know, long ago, too, folklorists lost the sense of 
community as necessarily being geographically connected, you know, face-to-face meeting, all that sort of stuff. That's still an important kind of community, but it's not the only community that exists. So it's, I mean, it's 25 years since we've been talking about virtual communities. And, you know, so the same kind of folklore processes that happened in face-to-face ways happen today uh, through people's telephones. Right. Yeah. we're, we're coming close to the end of our uh, our time here, but it reminds me, going back to this discussion we had about the word skeet, you know, mm-hmm. a year or so ago, there was a, a group of girls who were caught on video, young women caught on video, robbing a local pizza right. uh, parlor. And uh, overnight, the, the hashtag pizza skeet uh, kind of... Came, Isn't that great? Uh, which was great, which has <laughs> this lovely lyrical quality yeah. to it. Um, but yeah, it, and, it, and it spread rapidly. And then there were pizza skeet t-shirts and, you know, and people were that. composing songs <laughs> and whatnot. Same thing happened very recently when um, um, mustard pickles uh, mm-hmm. were under threat. of. I'm not, now, I'm, now I'm making air quotes, you know, sure. under threat in some way that the recipes were going to change or the manufacturer was going to change. And then all of a sudden online, there were all kinds of, you know, images and pictures and, and, and uh, mustard pickle or pickle crisis 2016 was, was uh, trending. And we see that all the time now with, with uh, virtual communication mm-hmm. that people are able to spread this kind of That's right. Very and it's, it's the smartness of, of you know, the wit, the wit of one, the wisdom of many. That, that's what 80 years ago a scholar called the proverb. Well, we see the same thing again today. Well, always been there and i think it's one of the things that has always attracted me to folklore the the fact that these are the wit of one in fact it's almost never the wit of one it's almost always the accumulated wit of lots of people who keep changing a little bit and turning it a little way and until it becomes just uh, responsive to uh, large numbers of people They, they all find it funny well, Phil, I feel like we could go on and talk about this forever, but our time is up. So thank you for, for coming on, and uh, and I, I wish you all the best in, in wherever your future takes you. I know you're well, aiming you for much. your retirement. Yeah, That's right. That'll be another year. Great. Well, take care. You too. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ich_nl. Thanks for listening.